Would you please pray with me? God, we ask you now to open our hearts so completely that in the hearing of your word, your law may be written upon our hearts and we may become letters of your love. Amen. The second scripture lesson today comes from the book of Proverbs. I will read chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Listen, children, to a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, and my mother's favorite, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever else you get, Get insight, prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a fair garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. This is the word of the Lord. Author Sarah Hurwitz wrote a book with a very long title. It is... Here all along, finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism, parentheses, after finally choosing to look there. She begins her book describing how she became a lapsed Jew. She pretty much followed the trend of being an American Jew found by the 2013 Pew Research Center that while she was part of the 94% of American Jews who feel proud to be Jewish, she was also part of the 22% of them, including 32% of millennial Jews who have no religion and identify as Jewish on the basis of ancestry, ethnicity, or culture. She was also part of the trend of moving from more observant to less observant. Overall, according to that trend, roughly one in four Jews who grew up Orthodox have switched to conservative or reform. 30% of those raised in the conservative movement have become reformed Jews. And 28% of those who grew up reform now identify as Jews of no religion. Sarah Hurwitz fell in that last category, becoming a Jew of no religion after her bat mitzvah. Every now and then, like when she traveled to Eastern Europe and visited several Jewish museums and Holocaust memorial sites, she would feel uneasy about her non-committal Jewish identity, recognizing that throughout history, people had risked and sacrificed their lives to practice and preserve Judaism. Here I was, she writes, with all the freedom in the world, but I just couldn't be bothered. 
As busy as she was, though, as a political speechwriter for then First Lady Michelle Obama, she put aside those uneasy feelings. It wasn't until at the age of 36, after breaking up with a boyfriend, she found herself with more time on her hands and happened to hear about an introduction to Judaism class at the local JCC in Washington, DC, and took the class that she totally reversed the trend documented by the Pew Research Center, at least for herself. I had always thought of myself as a good person, but the Jewish ethics we studied set a much higher bar for honesty generosity, and basic human decency than I had ever thought to set for myself. Once I actually understood the purposes of the holidays and life cycle rituals, they struck me as beautiful and profound, honoring the lessons of the past, sanctifying moments in the present, and conveying deep moral wisdom. Sarah Hurwitz, who had left Judaism as a teen, was now seeing her religion for the first time through adult eyes, and it amazed her. The first class led to another, more intensive class, then to retreats and further study on her own. It turned out that Judaism had deep wisdom to offer her and opened up spaces where she could wrestle with big questions that she didn't typically get to consider with other people. She recalls being at an office happy hour during the final months of the Obama administration when she approached two of her colleagues deep in conversation. What are you guys talking about, she asked. One of them replied, actually, we're talking about the afterlife. So excited, Sarah exclaimed, that's amazing. Can I join you guys? Can we talk about God too? Her colleagues stared back, baffled, and then one of them started laughing. No, Sarah, the afterlife, like what we're going to do after we leave the White House. <laughs> Sarah's excitement to talk about God, her desire to reflect on the meaning of life, her passion to become an even more ethical person, this is what I imagine the psalmist meant when he said, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And when he sang with reverence about loving God's law. Through deeper engagement with her religion, Sarah could relate to the psalmist who exclaimed, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is the kind of heartfelt love of wisdom that is also expressed in the book of Proverbs when it says, get wisdom, get insight, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. So how do you get wisdom? We know how to get knowledge. Teaching for the past 20 years at Yale University, New York Times columnist David Brooks depicts the current situation in our country whereby a very small segment of the population, 10 to 20% perhaps, go to very nice competitive colleges, 
then they marry each other, then they invest, according to one study, $10 million in each of their kids. Then their kids go to competitive colleges, marry each other and have kids, and live in one of, the, one of a handful of metropolitan areas where they then accumulate and concentrate immense economic, cultural, and political power. Profession after profession, he thinks, is succumbing to the notion that if you want to thrive in the profession, you better have gone to one of these elite schools. This phenomenon of meritocracy is certainly what has happened in his field of journalism. Observing this trend and seeing it play out among the students he teaches, David Brooks recognizes that the knowledge that these universities offer is very different from the wisdom we want people to have, our kids to have, our doctors, teachers, journalists, lawyers, bankers, ministers, neighbors, from the wisdom we want everyone to have. The kind of wisdom that the biblical writers have in mind is within the grasp of every person who desires it wholeheartedly. It doesn't require an elite education. It requires a disposition of the heart that the Bible sometimes calls fear of the Lord. Basically, it requires a desire to live day by day, even moment by moment, in a way that honors and glorifies God. While this may sound like a disposition of the heart that only a pious few would have, the biblical writers thought of wisdom as being for ordinary people and by ordinary people. The book of Proverbs contains wisdom that parents pass down to their children and that they received from their parents. It treats realities of birth and death, poverty and wealth, education and work, grief and joy, human love and love of God. The underlying assumption is that life is something more than just a bunch of stuff that happens, that everything has religious significance. There is no separation between the sacred and the secular. When we start to think of everything in the context of our relationship with God, it makes sense that our experiences take on more significance, more meaning, and that this would make a difference in practice. Back to the question then, how do we get wisdom? We have to want it with our whole heart, and we have to practice it. It takes practice. The Greek philosopher Aristotle defined practical wisdom as answering the question, what am I to do? Wisdom is practical because it figures out the right way to do the right thing in a particular circumstance, with a particular person, at a particular time. Aristotle taught that in order to figure out what is right, we have to keep in mind the overall goal or aim. For example, every vocation or profession, from parenting to being a journalist to being a police officer 
has an aim that the people in that vocation or profession keep in mind at all times. Following rules is no substitute for practical wisdom. In fact, sometimes following rules gets in the way of or derails a person from the aim. In his book, Practical Wisdom, retired Swarthmore College professor Barry Schwartz tells this story. One fine spring day, a father took his seven-year-old son to a Detroit Tigers baseball game. A few innings into the game, his son asked for a lemonade. The father dutifully went to a concession stand to get some. Mike's hard lemonade was all they had. And the father, having never heard of it and having no idea that it was 5% alcohol, bought a bottle and brought it to his son. While the father and son were cheering on the tigers, a security guard happened to notice that the child was sipping on the bottle of hard lemonade. The guard called the police, who in turn called the ambulance. The ambulance came to the ballpark and the child was rushed to the hospital. Doctors found, fortunately, no trace of alcohol in him and were ready to discharge him. But then the police put the child in a Wayne County Child Protective Services foster home. They hated to do it, but they had to follow procedure. County officials kept him there for three days. They hated to do it, but they had to follow procedure. Next, a judge ruled that the child could go home to his mom, but only if his dad left the house and checked into a hotel. The judge hated to do it, but he had to follow procedure. After two weeks, the family finally was reunited. The story told by Barry Schwartz reminded me of something that happened in my life, which thankfully had a very different ending. It was still winter in New Haven. I had given birth to Sophia maybe two months earlier. My good friend, Betsy, who came over to our house almost every day to visit Sophia and me said, Joyce, you have got to get out of the house. We didn't even celebrate your birthday. I know what, for your birthday, I'll take you to Mohegan Sun. Mohegan Sun was a casino not that far away. <laughs> Seeing the look on my face, Betsy assured me that there were restaurants and boutiques, things other than gambling. So I agreed to go on this outing and I took Sophia with me. We did have a good time. We ate at a restaurant. I bought a pretty beaded ring at one of the stores. Then Betsy said that as part of my birthday gift, she was gonna treat me to the slot machines. So with Sophia and my baby Bjorn, I went with my friend to learn to play a slot machine. Not long into the fun, a security guard approached me saying, Miss, minors are not permitted in here. <laughs> I told him I wasn't a minor and I was about to show him my ID when he said, Miss, I'm talking about the baby, not you. Oh my gosh, I was mortified. It was my first parental mistake. Fortunately, however, the security guard chose not to follow procedure and instead used practical wisdom. Recognizing not only a novice slot machine player, but also a novice mother, without reproaching me, he 
He just gently escorted me back out of the slot machine area. My story turned out harmlessly, but it could have turned out differently, resulting in a newborn infant being separated from her mother. If everyone were to practice wisdom, there's a better chance that we would have more harmless endings. Barry Schwartz told the story to make the point that sometimes institutions have rules, procedures, and systems in place that prevent ordinary people from utilizing their wisdom. Today, institutions are relying more heavily on the use of technology. Machines are doing a lot of what we used to think required human intelligence. For example, in many companies, certainly in government, machines are reading the cover letters of job applicants. I wouldn't be surprised if machines will eventually read college admissions essays. Without face-to-face -face interviews, already the college admissions process makes very little space to appreciate and ascertain who a person is and what kind of contribution that person could potentially make as a member of the community. Perhaps machines will reveal who humans are by revealing what machines cannot do, but I think we don't want to wait for machines to reveal this. We already know that we're becoming less and less humane the more systems we put in place that prevent us from practicing wisdom. We already know that machines are not going to help us in every moment to honor and glorify God, or to interpret our experiences in the context of our relationship with God. Just like our ancestors, we need to get wisdom. Nothing is going to do this work for us, or is going to make it easier to do. If anything, in this day and age, the pursuit of wisdom will require greater effort and intentionality on our part. It is up to us to prize wisdom highly, to love her. Amen.